welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, uh, here from the deck of the good ship, uh, Music uh, West. Yeah, Music, yes. <laughs> Fly by West. Fly by West. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, actually, this spectacular studio. Yeah. Ours, through the kindness of Derek West. Yeah, it's, it's a treat being here. I love it. And uh, we're working with a new microphone today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard, Aaron, I heard you and Mondo uh, discussing this microphone. Apparently, does it have mystical properties or what's the deal? Well, they've got replaceable capsules, which is awesome because you can have like 10 different microphones by only buying the little that little round thing in front top. of your face there. Yeah. yeah. So if you want like 10 different microphones without paying for 10 different studio microphones, yeah. that's the microphone for you. Yeah. And, so you can uh, just change it, the top. All right. So the, all I see is I see the word blue yeah. on the... Blue. Uh, yeah. Yes. On Company the pop from screen the, in front of me. Yeah. From the Baltic. That's the B of the blue. You're, that's a Baltic mic right in front of you. Is it really? Mm. It is. And that actually does fascinate me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if the thing looks kind of like a satellite. Yeah, it does. Uh-huh. Yeah. But okay. But it's suspended there. Yeah. Yeah, it floats. It floats in the air. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you are hearing via audio Nate's fascination with a piece of a. That's how cool it is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So Nate, look around the room. What other things do you see? Let's just uh, let's engage the room. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, what a sweet place. I mean, we're we're out here in 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 pastoral beauty. I mean, yeah. it's just gorgeous. Middle yeah. Tennessee outside in fall. In the fall. Hello. Yeah. And massive windows, yep. which and it looks to me, if I'm not mistaken, those right outside mm-hmm. in the in the uh, parlor part. What do we call that part of the studio? It's actually uh, like a lounge, but also it's the recording room. So if you want to put a band in there, you could do it. But there's there's a like a there's gar- a retractable well, window. Yeah, yes, like a garage door. Yeah, that goes all the way up to you can basically like a patio like at a restaurant yeah and just lifts up and it's just it's awesome man and it's got a spiral staircase in it spiral staircase that takes you up to the loft above where we are now yes yeah and 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 we're surrounded by a fabric covered uh sculpted foam goodness that looks uh yeah, <laughs> foam goodness. It's like, and and there's natural stone on one wall. Yes, yeah. uh, there incredible. is laminate uh, flooring. Yeah, uh, we've got we've got little so, bits of mirror here and there. Yeah, recessed lighting. Yeah, it's uh, incredible. Now this is uh, the most Eric- unexpected conversation. To- <laughs> Hey, for those of you that are listening, you can go to Fly By West Studio on yeah. the internet and actually see everything Nate's talking about. Yeah, well, it's awesome. Uh, although, here's the problem. It has taken us a month yeah. to figure out how to turn the lights off. Dude, this, th- there's, a, there's a light panel in here that's from Star Trek. I'm not even kidding. Yeah, yeah. And literally, Nate and Newton and I will have, for the last 30 days or so, been staring at this thing <laughs> and poking at it like, what is this? And, and trying to, where's the button? The whole time, and so Derek's wife comes down, and she just lifts up the panel. She says, there you go, guys. Just press that. Yeah. It's <laughs> got a flip-up yeah. screen on it, a flip-up so that yeah. gets to where the real buttons are. Oh, yeah. We're punching everything we can see, yeah. and the actual controls are behind a cover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Last week we came in and the lights were off, which this oh man, we couldn't work in the dark, and we couldn't figure out how to turn the lights it, on. It was scary. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to call her over and... And we were humiliated. Ha- it just so happens to be a mammoth-sized uh, female boxer out in the driveway as well. 
that <laughs> scared <laughs> the absolute hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love boxers. I love boxers. I love dogs. But, of course, you know, you get out of your car, you're not expecting a bear to be standing at the door. Okay, I just got to say, Mondo, you guys were talking. I'm getting a text from our producer uh, about uh, connecting with our guests this morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I wasn't listening to any of that until I heard you say, and I encountered a giant female boxer out front. <laughs> and I swear to you, I had no idea your mind, what you, you were see... talking about. I went to bed last night watching a, a boxing documentary on Duran and Sugar Ray Leonard. So boxing is on my mind, and oh, that was a okay. giant... Yes. Norse goddess with boxing gloves. Oh, uh, so, anyways, yeah, good. Thank you for that. I am now totally uh, uncomfortable. All right, great. Well, uh, needless to say, uh, <laughs> yeah, Helga will be in here later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's a it's a great environment, man. It's it's awesome here. So yeah. Um, so so this week is an interesting week. Yeah. I am I am looking forward to the interview that's about to come up. Yeah. Yeah. So am I. Mate, this was your desire. I think you you were the one that wanted to put this together, right? Yeah, sure. Um, I, let's just say Christian uh, broadcasting outlets are not lining up to interview our guest, okay. Frank Shaver. He's uh, in. I would dare to say in most corners of evangelical Christianity, he's kind of like the Judas Iscariot of the crowd. It kind of feels mm. like. Uh, and I I want to I want to talk to him about it when we get him on the phone. It kind of feels to me sometimes as though he kind of revels in that, and kind of he'll take an take an opportunity to stick a finger in the eye of the evangelical establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the most troublesome thing I I will say that I have looked forward to this conversation, and at the same time I'm feeling some discomfort about this conversation. Uh, we what, talked last okay, week. Wait, wait, yeah. wait. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this first. Yeah. What What did uh, Francis Schaefer mean to you? Because you're of the generation. Oh the Francis Schaefer and the Labrie Institute. Yeah. Was very important to dudes your age. Oh, absolutely. You know, older guys, geriatrics. Like <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, he is there, and he is not silent. Um. That book. Kind of it was a it was a lifesaver for me in college when I for the very first time encountered uh, you know I just came out of my little Pentecostal bubble into uh, the religion department in a secular university and uh, suddenly everything was up for grabs including the very existence of God uh, and any sense that the things I'd learned in Sunday school had any cultural relevance. And here was a guy who loved culture, who loved art and music, who read philosophy, and who believed and taught that uh, the Christian faith and the Christian message is more substantial than uh, any of the winds of, uh, uh, you know, of of doubt. Or uh, so anyway. that was enormous for me, and so I devoured Fran- Francis Schaeffer, and uh, and I have many friends too who kind of owe their mature Christian life to the work of this uh, this guy who, for a time, taught in St. Louis. So, 
Yeah. Yes. So Francis, uh, for those of you that don't aren't familiar with him, I think what he's you know later in his life he was definitely getting into the abortion issue and and the more political side of yeah. things he was trying to champion. But I think the period of life that most people know him from is when he started Labrie. So in Switzerland, he makes what is essentially, uh, see, I don't want to call it a commune because it was, commune seems so American hippie, yeah. and this was so European. It was a place where people would go for a time and live together and explore life and philosophy and Christianity. Yeah. And there were rock stars. Timothy Leary went out there, as well as so many Christians that wanted to delve into their faith. Yeah. So our guest today is is his oldest child, right? Frank is his oldest? Boy, you or, know what? I should you know, know that. I, I, yeah, well, I don't, so I'm not going to say. I, he is one of the oldest. He certainly was involved at Labrie, uh, a young man who, who was born and raised in this environment of, of intellectuals and spiritual explorers. And he uh, did film work and things like that. Uh, you can see on YouTube times when he's interviewing his mom and dad. You know, he, he documented a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, though he was so a part of that, he came to a point in his life where he felt like he needed to... Uh, how would you even describe what he needed to in his journey? I, 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 I think, you know... Ways. I just don't want to spend too much time without. Yeah, have yeah. So many things to talk to him about. Yeah, yeah. I think he he felt that. Uh, I, I, who knows? I want to ask him about some of his inner motivations because I I wonder. You know, I have this ambivalent relationship with my father, who's now passed on, and I do know that you know some of the theological turns that I took and the philosophical choices mm-hmm. I've made have been governed by, you know, <laughs> this this loud voice of my father. So what's it like to be Francis Schaeffer's kid and then try to establish an identity of your own? But at some point, for, he came to believe that what he was doing was intellectually dishonest. Uh, he'd been a filmmaker uh, and a, really a darling of the uh, religious right. And, uh, and he made an about face. And now... Uh, it, it, See, I want to. I want to temper that. I, yeah. I don't think. Uh, I remember reading his his book where he really talked about his childhood. What was that one called, Nate? Crazy for God. Crazy for God. I happen to be in Solvang, which you know. Oh yeah, we love right. the Danish village of Solvang. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't remember why I was. I think I just wanted to take a day to work out of town, yeah. and that was like an hour away. So I went there and. I was sitting in a bookstore, and I saw that book, yeah. and this was probably a decade ago, and I ended up reading the entire book sitting there in the bookstore coffee shop, Yeah, yeah. and, and it, was, it was disconcerting. Francis Schaeffer does not mean as much to me as to you, Yeah. Um, but I, I just, oh, when you're watching, you know, I'm a pastor, and I have pastor's kids. You're speaking... As a pastor's kid, right? Sure. I have I have interviewed like literally anytime I find out someone's a pastor's kid over the last twenty years, I have pulled them aside, whether they're fifteen years old or fifty years old, and I've asked the same question. And this has probably come to about seventy or eighty people over right. the last twenty years that I pulled them aside and said, "Okay, you're a pastor's kid. I'm a pastor. I have kids. I need to ask you some questions. Is that okay?" Every one of them said yes. I said, "Number one." Are you one of the pastor's kids that ended up incredibly screwed up because you're a pastor's kid? Or 
is life amazing and your view of the world is amazing because you're a pastor's kid? That's question one. Yeah. And I'd say it's about 60%-ish, say, screwed up, 40%, like way more than I would expect wow. did not get screwed up by that. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I could I could talk about things I learned from those conversations, but... I care deeply about this when I see a pastor's kid saying, let me explain this life that you don't understand. Yeah. And I think, oh, no, what will my children write about me? Not that anyone will care to read it, yeah. but knowing that children have a perspective on their life yeah. that, that would make the father blush, yeah. you know? And that's, and that's important. And frankly, I will say that for all the screwed up pastor's kids, the... The 100% consistent answer was, what I experienced in church of my father was not what I experienced at home. And so it called into question not just who he was, but who his God was and what his faith was. Yeah. Those are the kids that walked away. Yeah. Now, I'm tempering the Frank Schaefer thing because I don't think he did an about-face. Mm-hmm. And I think he does play on that. I mean, his, his most recent book uh, is called what... Uh, why I am an atheist who believes in God. Right. So there you go. That's the tempered part. He's not an atheist, yeah. but he wants to explore thoughts and questions that atheists want to ask, and he's not afraid of those because he no longer holds to a strict structure or paradigm. Yeah. So it's not a 180. It's a, you know, it's like a 68, 72, I don't know. So we're, we're at the question point now where we're about to speak with a man who is not afraid to ask questions. Which brings in Mike's, Mike McCarg's stuff last week, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so, so what do we want our listeners to do to prepare? Uh, because Frank might say things that make them uncomfortable. Yeah. How do they need to prepare their hearts to engage a conversation and grow in their own faith, even listening to someone that uh, might say things that make them uncomfortable? Take a deep breath. Um, understand that this is not going to be a debate about the existence of God. This is going to be a conversation of the kind that Jesus had with regularity with people who were not of his community of faith or whose uh, religious, philosophical, theological uh, opinions were different from his. Uh, We're going to have uh, a gracious conversation. And we will have that in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. We curse, we plunder, we rifle, and we'll drink up behind it, yo ho. We kidnap and drive it, and don't give a hope, drink up behind it, yo ho. Yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. And we're back on the Pirate Monk Podcast with today's guest. We are so honored to have with us, joining us via Skype, uh, New York Times bestselling author, Frank Schaefer. Uh, perhaps known, I don't know about exactly the, uh, the, uh, who all is listening to the uh, podcast today, how many of you may know his dad, his mom, or how many of you are so young you don't know uh, Frank uh, Schaefer and Eve Schaefer, but this is uh, uh, Frank. Uh, anyway, welcome, Frank. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining thanks, us. Thanks. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Um, your latest title, uh, I'm, I'm wondering really, it's got to be a challenge to sell a book that in the title 
uh, the title of which can be off-putting to believers and unbelievers alike. Right. Uh, <laughs> the title of the book is Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God. How did you, uh, uh, first of all, are you pleased with the title? Uh, uh, do you find yourself endlessly explaining the title? Uh, yeah, go with that. Well, let me jump to the subtitle first, which is How to Give Love, Create Beauty, and Find Peace. And of course, the subtitle is what the book is about. Yeah. The title is the the uh, billboard to bring people into the book, mm-hmm. to get someone to pick it up at Barnes & Noble and uh, take a look at it or go online and buy the book. Yeah. You know, titles have to do two things. They have to get people interested and they have to give a kind of a description of what a book may be about. So first of all, let me give you a little background. I'm, I write literary nonfiction for a living as well as fiction. Yeah. So I've had a couple of New York Times bestsellers as, as far ranging as a book I wrote called Keeping Faith a father-son story about love in the United States Marine Corps, which after Oprah interviewed me, uh, became a a national bestseller. And that came out maybe, I don't know, nine years ago, seven years ago, and uh, was about what it was like to be the father of a Marine serving in Afghanistan and Iraq when none of my neighbors had kids in the military. And so really, that book became a vehicle to look at what we don't like to admit is true about this country, and that is our class system. Right. Because... Aside from the officer corps, which sometimes have kids serve because their father's dead, you know, most of the recruits are middle and lower middle class Americans. They are not coming from people like George W. Bush's family who sent my child to war, but his military age daughters were nowhere in sight. Now, that's typical of both the Senate and Congress. So my books kind of follow the trajectory of my own life. Mm -hmm. When my son was in the Marines, I'm writing about that because that's what's happening to me. I come from an evangelical background. My dad, Francis Schaeffer, became a household word in evangelical circles in the 70s and 80s. And so obviously, since that's the environment I grew up in, some of that figures in my fiction and nonfiction. So when it comes to this title, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, I guess the shorthand explanation for me is that as a 62-year-old father of three grown kids, grandfather of five Little kids, three of whom live right across the street. Jack and Nora are in the other room with my wife, Jeannie, right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nora's seven months. Jack's four years old. And we do child care in the day because both of my kids work. And I'll be picking Lucy up at first grade. She's six uh, in about three hours from now. The fact is that this book follows the trajectory of my own faith journey away from some of the certainties of my evangelical past. But on the other hand, I consider myself a believer and a Christian. So really, it's about my own struggle with not just faith, but how to define who I am and what I believe and what I'm trying to tell my grandchildren about God and faith. So when I say I'm an atheist who believes in God, What I hope is that that reflects a very honest book Mm -hmm. that sometimes goes places other people don't go because either they're drawing a paycheck as a pastor and so they don't dare talk about what they really feel about their faith because they'd get fired Mm -hmm. or they're in a family where, you know, they don't want to be having fights at the Thanksgiving table. So they just keep quiet about the fact that they maybe have a very different faith now than when they did when they were 20, say. In my book, what I really try to do is lay out the, the idea that I've discovered in my own life, which is faith is a journey, not a series of conclusions, right. that labels are always intrinsically false. For instance, one thing I say in the book is that I've never met a Christian 
I've never met an atheist. I've never met an agnostic. I've only met people who are on a spiritual journey who are as ambivalent as, as I am. Sometimes, for instance, I, I was talking at the University of Oklahoma the other day, and I said to the student group there, hey, listen, whatever you all you take away from this talk, let me tell you something. People do change and change their minds. There are kids here tonight who are atheists who have arrived to hear me talk because of the title of my book. And I guarantee some of you are going to be Southern Baptist pe preachers before you're all done. <laughs> and there are people well, here who are born-again, 20-year-old Christians, and you're part of some campus life ministry. And I guarantee some of you are going to burn out when you're my age. You, you're, you're going to be leading new atheist authors. Yeah. And uh, that's, not a, that's not a prediction of any individual life. But the fact is, it's like people who say they're never going to get married. And then they're just living with someone and have a baby. And well, of course, whatever you call it. You know, they've been with that person 20 years. It is marriage or yeah. somebody who who says they're never going to have a child. And then they have that first baby and everything changes and their whole view of life changes. And all the declarations they made as a feminist on campus 20 years ago seem silly to them now. So the first thing, well, let me let me, let me ask you this. Based, God, yeah, it, based, it's based really on that, though. for honesty and getting away from labels instead yeah. of attaching all these convenient labels to make ourselves feel comfortable. Yeah, and so, part, part part of the function of the label is so that we can decide whether or not uh, to listen to somebody. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, Aaron, talk, go ahead. You talk about, yeah, in the in the book, you talk about life without categories and, and actually walking through doubt. I, I think part of what you are talking about in this book and, and even in some of your other books is that journey of how to become... How to own your own faith by losing the categories and addressing the doubts. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I think one of the things I look at in why I'm an atheist who believes in God is the idea of trying to follow the person of Christ instead of being addicted to certainty. It's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we seem to think that, you know, you're saved by having the right ideas about God or yeah. some theological construct. And of course, since we're all finite, let's just first of all lay down a basic fact here. Nobody can have the right idea about anything because we're not God. Right. So everything we approach is, a, is with a sense of imperfection and humility or it's out of all relationship to, to actual facts. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I think that often, you know, as, as people who come from Christian backgrounds, we fall into a kind of a biblical idolatry where we're trying to conform our view of life and even our view of God to the Bible as if what we worship is a book instead of God and who we follow is a book instead of Jesus who happens to be in that book in terms of his own biography. But, you know, what's interesting and I talk about in the book, my, my book that is, you know, whenever you look at Jesus in his confrontation with the Torah, let alone the religious leaders of the day, he wouldn't have made a very good evangelical because any evangelical preacher that stood up and said, well, the Bible says this, but here's what I'm telling you, and then told people something totally opposite would immediately be fired, called a heretic or a liberal or yeah. something else. But, you know, um, I, I know my Bible fairly well, and there's not one instance in the New Testament where Jesus talks about the Torah where he is not either attacking it literally and saying, this isn't what it means, you've got it wrong, or adding to it or negating it. And and I think one of the big examples is is when he meets the, the Samaritan woman by the well, and even she knows that theology is supposed to count, tribe is supposed to count, where you worship is supposed to count. And, and Jesus really wipes the slate clean and says, well, actually, theology doesn't matter. The mountain you worship on is not the point. The tribe you're part of is not the point. Your theology is not the point. 
Um, you know, what God desires is, is, is faith, uh, and what God is looking for is, is spirit and truth, not these trappings, these labels, the correct formula. And then, of course, you know, if anybody's misunderstood the point, you just look at all the examples. I mean, Jesus is touched by a menstruating woman, and instead of rebuking her, he says her faith has made her whole, and yet technically he's now unclean yes. because the Bible has that big streak of misogyny running through it. Then, you know, he touches the leper. Well, there's two, ver there's two chapters in Leviticus saying don't do that, and he touches a dead body. Now he's unclean for I don't know how long. Um, you know, a whore weeps on his feet and pours ointment on him. All of the disciples and apostles object. The story makes it into the New Testament, uh, written by people who didn't, who actually are on record as not approving of what he did. So not just in the word, but in the action, you don't have someone who is a good fit for the idea that faith depends on a correct interpretation of theology in a book. What you really have is someone who, as I put it in my book, why I'm an atheist who believes in God, you know, as it were, lit the fuse on what I call an empathy time bomb that has taken decades, centuries, eons, millennia to go off and is still going off. And really, you know, when it comes to empathy, it's how we treat people and the content of our own character that counts, not getting the formula right. Yeah. Let me let me ask you to I'm going to ask you to rephrase that from a different angle because the fact that you the fact that you're using the Bible as the example for what you're saying has automatically made people stop listening to you. But I think you you have made this point um I I think what you are meaning is a little bit less controversial than it sounds. Still scary, but less controversial. You've said even recorded history uh, where we have the facts, we don't have the facts. So you're talking about a, an aspect of subjectivity that everybody wants to pick up a book on John Adams and feel like they're getting the real story without without thinking, uh, I'm actually reading this story through my cultural context, through my lens of a person in 2014. So explain what does this mean uh, outside of the Bible, you're saying this phenomenon happens, that even recorded history, where we have the facts, we don't have the facts. What's that mean? Well, let's let's go back to the Bible, off-putting as it might be to some people. Listen, if, if, if the, the interpretation of what anything in the Bible was saying was clear, you wouldn't have 23,000 denominations and warring seminaries, all of whom say they affirm what the scripture says, it would be self-evident. So that obviously is not the case. I think, you know, what we have to look at is that that the overarching lessons of life do not come from any book, they come from life itself. And if God is really the creator, then that obviously makes sense because he's not just the creator of a little religious circle we live in, it's the whole of reality. And I'll give you an example and then get back to what you were talking about in terms of sub subjectivity, which of course is a, a valid point. But you know, as I look at the trajectory of my own life going from father to grandfather, you know, I got Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18, unmarried. We were living in this Christian community called Brief Fellowship. Thank God for the compassion and kindness of my parents and the other people who were there who, uh, who, by the way, were wonderfully hypocritical in the sense that according to the book, according to what they say they believe, you know, we should have been rejected and chastised instead of we were loved and taken in because they were actually people functioning on the basis of trying to follow Jesus, not following a religion. Uh, exactly the kind of case in point I'm talking about. Ooh, can, can we pause here? I want to pause here for your sake. Some people uh, 
have taken your writings and it hurts them because they feel like you are besmirching stuff they love. And you just said, no, these people actually were trying to live out what they saw Jesus live out, and I experienced that. I want to give you full credit for the statement you just made. Right. And the thing is, I think a lot of people see a dichotomy and are so fearful because, you know, often we become certainty addicts that when we talk about Christianity or the Bible or our life experience with our family and our children as somehow (laughs) teaching us something in addition to what we can read in the book or hear from a pulpit, you know, people become fearful that somehow their faith is now being attacked. But actually, I think they've got it completely wrong. Because if life itself, for instance, our experience with children and grandchildren does not teach an overarching lesson that proves to be true in the context of trying to follow Jesus as the example, then obviously what we're trying to follow is not is not going to work, but it's also untrue. And the wonderful thing to me about this pattern that we find in following Jesus as an example and trying to model our life on the the example of Jesus as well as his teaching is that <clears throat> in fact it produces the very things and the very fruit that religion claims to produce but often does not. So when you've got the rules and regulations and that becomes the basis of your activity with other people, then you do what I did as a teenage father, for instance, that was steeped in the Calvinist reformed faith, thinking that, okay, I'm head of the home, I have to be in charge of my wife, I've got to discipline my children. And what this led to was a kind of an inhumanity and conflict that was actually in opposition to, I think, the spirit of Jesus, who, for instance, speaking of men being the head of women or some nonsense like that, tells Mary and Martha to come out of the kitchen. And mind you, you were talking about context. This isn't a Middle Eastern context. This is in a culture 2,000 years ago that might as well have been run by ISIS and the Taliban. Okay, this is tribal Middle Eastern culture, Jewish and otherwise. And Jesus sits down as an unmarried male in a kitchen with two females not being attended by a male relative, just to set the context, and says, come out of the kitchen, forget the housework, just talk to me one-on-one. Well, this is unheard of. It's as unheard of as him not rebuking a menstruating woman for touching him. It's as unheard of as him sitting with the woman at the well saying, I don't care if you're a Samaritan. Um, When we look at the actual example of life and life of Jesus, and I I don't want to offend anybody, but maybe this will make us think, he would not have made a very good evangelical preacher because this was a rule breaker. (laughs) This was someone who really didn't care what the religious elite thought about him. This is someone who would have been fired from the editorship of Christianity Today magazine if he had ever written equivalent articles challenging the law, the Torah, and the rest of it that he actually lived out. But that's precisely why I think those of us who are trying to follow Jesus can trust him. Uh, One of the reasons is is that he, he is not going to fit into this neat, tidy package of theology, but rather comes down right where we live. So I'm a better father and grandfather because I try to follow that example than if I tried to follow some rubric about being head of the home, which was an amalgam of biblical teaching, theology, tradition of Western culture, uh, instead of really looking at who Jesus was and saying, look, you know, is this beautiful? Is this what Jesus would do? And cliched as that is, I think it's a very good question to ask ourselves. So that, that falls in the category of if you want to follow Jesus, you can't follow the Bible, which is, of course, a terrifying statement, that you've made, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, Explain. what I'm trying to say is, listen, you know, let me put it in a different way that'll still be terrifying maybe to some people, but uh, but uh, uh, give us something to think about. If you are a Christian and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, 
then you are duty bound to use Jesus as the lens through which you read your Bible. Because Jesus trumps scripture. If he doesn't, then he's not God. So whether you think scripture was inspired or not, nobody argues with the fact that it was written down by human beings, that it's been translated through various languages. So if Jesus is an example of how he confronts and works through the Torah, which is the only scriptures he had, there's no New Testament, is not the lens through which we read the Torah, we have a problem in then claiming he's the son of God. And the way he read the Torah was to always have empathy, trump regulation rules, yeah. always, in both what, example mercy and what he said. Judgment? And, and, and what he said. So let me just let me just finish, and then you can come back, and I'll I'll try to explain what I haven't you know been clear about or gotten wrong. But the but but I think the second thing is, and this is where you know it's it gets odd for people since Jesus is in the New Testament. I think that applies to reading the New Testament as well. And I'll give you an example. Uh, when when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor even male or female in Christ, I think Paul has gotten the point. That is the Jesus that sits down with Mary and Martha. That is the Jesus who told the Roman centurion, who was not a Jew or a Christian, that he had the greatest faith in Israel. So let me just give you the equivalent of how outlandish that is. This is Jesus telling an occupying uh, ISIS member in Iraq that he's found the greatest faith in Iraq in a Muslim ISIS member who is persecuting people that we, whose side we are on. That's who the Roman centurion was. So go figure in terms of a nice, neat package. Jesus is obviously looking for more than outward labels. So when you get to when you get to reading the New Testament and Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, that is very much part of the teaching of empathy trumping rules. When Paul is trying to build a church in the Middle East and in the Roman Empire, and he tells women to sit down and be silent and keep their heads covered and not sing in church or even talk or pray. That sounds a lot more like the Middle East Jesus was rebuking when he said, the scriptures may say, but I say, then it does like Jesus. And we have to use our heads. If we stop using our brains when we read and we take it as a magical document, then you know what? We'd make really good Mormons because they believe a golden tablet came down from the sky brought by an angel. Whereas the Christian tradition is, hey, this is the tradition that came down through the church. This is the book that we have gotten bound into this thing we call the Bible, the Old Testament, Torah, uh, and, and the canon of the New Testament. But we also have been given brains to read this, but we're not left orphans because we have the ultimate lens through which to read our own Bibles. And that is, what would Jesus do? And if we aren't, then... I just I just throw this out. Then it's odd to think that we say he's the son of God, because if he is the son of God, then Jesus, as the lens through which we read scripture, is not something perfect for us because we're not perfect. We'll never get it right. But it's a whole lot better than just making it into a magical document and saying, I believe everything in it, even though I can't understand it, even though a lot of it seems to contradict itself. If we have Jesus as the lens through which we read our Bibles, we have a good place to start. I didn't say finish. I didn't say have perfect knowledge. I didn't say trumps everything else. I didn't say there's no discussion. I just said it's a good place to start. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, uh, one of the things I appreciated most about uh, about your latest book is that it's not uh, a logical treatise. It's not right. uh, a diatribe. Uh, it's a memoir. 
right. and a beautifully written memoir. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm a huge fan of your writing. I never read Crazy Thank for you. God. I did read Portofino and was transported by it. Thank you. Uh, Thank you have you. a marvelous uh, poetic gift, and uh, and you write beautifully. And I'm close to you in stage of life. I'm only four years behind you, and I also am a grandfather. And uh, I spent uh, five years in the ministry a long time ago. Uh, and raised my kids in church, and my youngest kids really, uh, uh, they would not define their faith the same as mine, and they're right. still trying to f- figure things out. Mm. Um, and I I wrote a memoir a few years ago. Now, I, my dad wasn't Francis Schaeffer, but in the in the little non-denominational denomination we were a part of, in our little part of the country, he did have <laughs> papal status. Right. Uh, and I wrote about him in my book. And uh, some of uh, our family and some of my dad's friends uh, are still re- upset with me about some of the things I said about my dad. And it's a good thing they didn't see the first draft. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw that draft. I oh. loved the first draft. <laughs> oh, oh. But um, – Thomas Nelson didn't like it either, though, so no, no, it's no. okay. But when I look back, when I look back at my life, my life choices, I mean, I, I, went to, I went to Princeton Seminary because my father hated seminaries and Princeton most of all. I did it to piss him off, basically. I yeah. didn't know it then, but I see it now. Yeah. I, I wonder, it's very clear, I, I, I'm probably projecting my feelings onto you. I mean, I loved my dad. My dad's now passed on. Sure. Uh, I worshipped him when I was young. Yeah. When I grew older and came to uh, understand kind of the abuse and neglect uh, that went along with ministry and upbringing, I grew to resent him at the same time I loved him. Sure. Um, and that has colored. And now, you know, that, I, that I've got grown kids and I've got grandkids who, by the way, it's so touching in uh, your latest book, your relationship with your grandkids and the way you write about them. Uh, it's it's very very pow- far more powerful than any uh, logical argument could ever be. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Will you about your relationship with your dad and your mom, both of who are now gone? Mm. Uh, and did you find yourself as you were? I mean, how difficult was it to leave uh, the fold of the religious right in which you really had status? As you look back on it now, uh, what kind of emotional and psychological forces were at work? Well, you know, you're talking about the book. So let me start there. Why I'm an Atheist Who Begins With God. The, the, the start of the book is actually speaking of biography and memoir. Uh, is a story about getting on an airplane after I've uh, been at my mother's funeral where she died in Switzerland living with one of my sisters because that's where my parents had their ministry. So she went back there and, and lived with Debbie and I used to go visit her there. And uh, I talk about um, coming back from her funeral and meeting an opera singer on the airplane who uh, would have been mom's ideal uh, seat companion because mother was a huge classical music aficionado and saved her money even in the days of ministry when uh, there was none Mm -hmm. uh, to take us to classical concerts. And so that's sort of actually my mom's funeral and death two years ago in March was um, my way into the subject of trying to connect exactly what you're talking about, this feeling of love and and uh, and and the care and nurture that I got from my parents on one hand, the fact that I see things a little differently than my parents did in another way. But, you know, the odd thing is that, of course, the caricature of my father as a leader of the religious right, which is really the last 
eight years of his life isn't isn't accurate either. So that when people say, oh, well, what would your father think about this? And so I have to ask them the same question as I would ask myself. And that is, well, which Francis Schaeffer are we talking about? Yeah. The, The young, fiery Calvinist fundamentalist missionary who headed to Europe with work to work with kids in bombed out cities in the night in 1947. The uh, the religious guru who was running Libri Fellowship in, say, 1968, 69, when we had a steady stream of hippies. And before that, the beats coming through, hitchhiking through Europe on their way to to India or wherever, who would stop by, crash as the vernacular was in those days for a couple of days free, maybe stick around, ask questions about God and philosophy. My dad's giving lectures on everything from Igmar Bergman, Federico Fellini, Bob Dylan's lyrics. Um, you know, when I met Jimmy Page, who was the lead guitar for the Led Zeppelin, uh, Jimmy was reading one of my dad's books, Escape from Reason. Nothing in those books was anything except uh, looking at religion and philosophy from a Christian perspective, but you wouldn't have ever said right or left. And if you had come to Labrie, the average evangelical would have been, and was, by the way, if they stopped by, shocked, because my father never threw anybody out for being gay. Uh, you know, if kids came through that still had drug addiction and were shooting up in the forest, as some of the British contingent did, some rock and rollers who came to st- stay in Labrie, dad never kicked them out. Right. I mean, this was not Liberty Baptist College by any stretch of the imagination. And then in 1970, <laughs> in the 1970s, when we made these film series, How Should We Then Live and Whatever Happened to the Human Race? And dad took a stand on the abortion issue with Dr. Sierra Coop, who became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General. And of course, I knew all these people, you know, um, from the president up and down. Uh, as, along with my dad as his kind of nepotistic sidekick in those days. <laughs> jo- jo- jokingly, as I say, only the mob, the British royal family, and evangelical ministries run the same <laughs> level of nepotism. I mean, uh, Franklin Graham, yeah. Pat Robertson's son, need I say more? And I was on that path. So, yeah, I go through this whole thing. But here's the amazing thing to me. You know, the great tribute to my parents is, is that I have felt free in my own lifetime pursuit of trying to follow Jesus, which I talk about here in this book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, to come out in my own way without any sense of alienation from where they were coming from. So kind of like you with your book, the people who got upset were sort of peripheral, but my own family didn't, and my mom sure didn't. Mm -hmm. She thought that it was great that I was still wrestling with these issues, and she only died two years ago, so she was in on the whole transformation. Um, You know, I got an interesting letter, which I'll share with you, uh, from somebody who grew up like you did and like I did with a religious leader for a father. I I got a a note after my book, um, Crazy for God, which was a memoir on my journey out of the religious right came out, from uh, Ruth Graham, not Billy's wife, but his daughter. And Ruth wrote and said, you know, you're the only person who's ever written a memoir from a Christian, a well-known Christian family that I know of, who's who's actually tried to tell the truth about the movement we were both part part of. And then she finished it off, and this is a letter, not a email, and she says, and by the way, we were all sacrificial lambs. Mm -hmm. And what she meant by that was that so often ministry predominates and family, the actual values we're talking about somehow gets left in the dust while we're, we're building all this. And I was a good friend, for instance, of Richard Roberts in the day when he was just starting to come yeah. through the Oral Roberts thing. He felt exactly the same thing. I mean, the guy's life turned into chaos in so many ways, but, but uh, it was not an easy thing. The great thing is about Francis Schaeffer and Edith Schaeffer, just to defend my parents for a moment, is that sure, you know, they had their failings and so forth and so on. But 
as anybody who reads Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God will know, or anybody who reads my memoir, Crazy for God, will know, in spite of what some evangelical establishment types have tried to say, because there's a nasty thing that goes on in the evangelical world. If they don't like what you're saying intellectually, instead of dealing with the actual issues, sometimes they just try to write you off. Sure. So that happens in all walks of life, but evangelicals are no different. People who actually read my books come away with one thing for sure, just like my atheist Jewish editor in New York did. And that is, whatever this is, it's a book that is full of love for this person's parents and the tradition I come from. Now, I have differences with that tradition, but it's in the context of actually trying to look at what's really there. Um, and and my uh, take on dad, for instance, was that he opened the door to art, music, literature, culture, philosophy, to an entire evangelical world that had never considered it. Right. And that's the door. that's the door I walked through and continue to walk through. And thank God for the fact that my father had the guts to get in trouble with all sorts of fundamentalists, for instance, by putting pictures of nude art in his book, How Should We Then Live? And he would laugh literally and say, I mean, I'm not making this up. You know, who are these idiots? When he would get a letter from someone saying, why did you show a statue that yeah. was naked? And he'd say, they're talking about Michelangelo's David, for heaven's sake. What is wrong with these people? Yeah. So, you know, anybody who thinks that I have had problems with the kind of blinkered, closed-minded evangelical mindset should have talked to my dad. Uh, when he was dealing with reactions to his books on art and philosophy, where he took art and philosophy seriously in an evangelical culture that was somehow afraid of these things, especially of art. And dad opened the door to so many people in culture and artistic fields, musicians, dancers, poets, writers, and his big message to them. In fact, I got an email yesterday from someone who was reminding me, my mom had told them this, don't worry about putting a Christian message into anything. Just make it a good ballet, make it a good symphony, make it a good book. That is the message because we're serving the actual true God of creation not somebody who demi demands Jesus propaganda all the time. So my parents were very passionate about this stuff, and obviously it stuck, because I am still too, and anybody who reads Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God will know that what I care about is my grandchildren, taking them to church every Sunday, what I learn there, being with them, the art we make, the books we read, keeping them off iPads and all this garbage that is gonna dissuade them from tactile, direct contact with the world. You know, that's my mom's universe she built. I haven't walked away from that. I'm still doing it. Okay, let me ask you two questions, two questions that I think will be important for our listeners, okay? So number one, the people that want to dismiss you and the questions you're asking are going to do so uh, saying that you are now a heretic and what you believe is not true, so don't listen to Frank Schaefer. Don't consider him. So the first question that I would ask is, who is Jesus Christ to you? Because I think if that's a, the, the important question. Well, Jesus Christ to me is exactly the person he claims to be in the New Testament, the Son of God, the Creator, the, the person we emulate, and in addition to which, the lens through which I read the rest of the Scripture. So here's something they won't like. He is the challenger of Scripture and the challenger of Christianity in the Church. And basically, from my point of view, of what evangelicalism has become, which is this kind of frightened, cowering religious expression of Christianity. Uh, you know, Jesus also is a heretic and would be an outcast and would not be able to get a job in any reputable evangelical organization. So once you begin to read his life in the context of the times he was living in, you have to understand Jesus, whatever he would be, would not be considered 
uh, an evangelical Christian or anything even religious today by the standards we've constructed in terms of our culture war, in terms of our politics, all this other stuff. So anyway, I, you know, to me, Jesus is the son of God. When I go to a Greek Orthodox church on Sunday with my daughter, granddaughter Lucy on my hip and say the Nicene Creed, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not mumbling things that I don't agree with. However, I'd add something. And that is, I don't necessarily understand everything in it. Yeah. But I don't understand what the word love is either. But I've been married for 44 years to the same woman, and I brought her a cup of coffee in bed this morning. That's okay, love. So that, yeah, but I can't, that, define, I can't define yeah. all the theology and nail it down and sign my name to stuff. I can say, I'm trying to do this. This is a struggle. It's a struggle to stay married and not commit adultery and sleep with other people. It's a struggle to find, follow Jesus in a secular world. But... I'm doing it. I'm trying. Yep. And that's what being a Christian to me is. It isn't saying, oh, I'm so certain about this declaration of faith, I'll never question anything. So that, that leads me to the second question. And I understand your struggle with not sleeping with other people, because you are a good-looking man, and that's that's got to be hard. <laughs> All right. So question two. So question one makes me say, Frank, uh, you're my brother regardless of the nuances of a conversation, we embrace who Jesus is. So question two is this. Or how I'll, I'm trying to say things, right or wrong. Like I say in my book, hey, I could be wrong about a lot of stuff, but I'm trying sure. to say things in a way that actually lead people to think about stuff. Oh, I mean, yeah. this, someone, one preacher who had just read this book emailed me. He said, hey, listen, if you want an advertisement for this book, and I'm not going to do it, but I'll tell you. He said, just tell everybody whose son or daughter or mother or dad or brother-in-law or whoever it is, used to be a Christian and gave up totally and now calls themselves an atheist or they're leaving the faith, tell them to get them to read this book. This is the last bridge back for the person who's seen it all and has rejected everything. Now, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's certainly something that is definitely on my heart. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm a pastor who often says on a Sunday morning, hey, everybody, I'm sorry, you're getting the worst version of me. Because 10 years from now, I'll know so much more than today about this thing. So I apologize in advance, which means all of us, you've just described a journey that was incremental in your learning. And so when somebody jumps in and says, oh, I read this book, and that's not where they're at, it's, it's hard. You took a lifetime to get where you're at and say, these are the things I'm struggling with. So what is, as a man who who loves Jesus, what is your desire for Christians who are going to open a book where you know you're going to scare them, you're going to shake them? What's your desire for them? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it is. I, you know, and this is not, uh, I'm not being facetious. I'm trying to plant a time bomb of my own. And that is, you know, when I look at Jesus, I say he planted an empathy time bomb. I am trying to attack certainty and replace it with faith. I know this will scare some people, but I think, you know, I have a line in the book that uh, religion is a neurological disorder. Faith is the only cure. The Pharisees had religion. Jesus brought faith. He said, we're going to worship in spirit and truth. And so essentially, if we can free ourselves from the neurological disorder of being afraid that God hates us if we get our theology wrong and wants to burn us forever, and rather look at God the way I think my little granddaughter Lucy looks at me, which is with unconditional trust and love, which is, by the way, not the case with my own children when I was a harsh teenage father. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, reading that in her eyes shows me that I've learned something in life and that there's a better approach to some of these things than than laying it all down all the time and instead approaching with humility and just saying, hey, listen, you know, we're all in the same boat. So what I would like to do is help the folks who've been writing emails to me about this book and more people like them who write to me and say, hey, I thought I was absolutely alone. I thought I was the only person who was thinking this stuff. Um, Now that I met you through the book, I feel much less alone. I feel much less alone in my journey, my ability to ask questions, the fact that I'm divided between my secular views and my my Christian and, and, and my my family views that this is a struggle for you and that here's how you're fighting it through has encouraged me to keep going and not just give up. I got a letter from a guy the other day who said, I haven't been to church for 30 years. I'm an atheist. He said that why am I, why am I an, uh, an atheist who believes in God is the first thing I've read. My mother-in-law gave it to me. He says, it's the first thing I've read in 30 years that has made me even think about reconsidering some of my presuppositions. And and uh, he finished up with a sort of a facetious line. He says, I personally blame you if I ever find myself back in a church again. So <laughs> yeah. I took that as a kind of a very left, left-handed compliment, but that's why, I, that's who that book is for. And so my book is for the person who thinks they are alone uh, with their fears, their doubts, and their struggles, and with their ambivalence and their embrace of paradox. And I'm saying, instead of being afraid of these things, embrace these things, because God does not hate you. Your relationship with God is the same as my relationship with my granddaughter, Lucy, who the other day broke a plate in my kitchen and Lucy looked worried. And I lit, I literally got down on my knees next to her, eye level with my six-year-old little granddaughter. And boy, this is a different person than I was with my little daughter, Jessica, I'm sorry, sorry to say, 40 years ago. And I looked at Lucy and I said, Lucy, I don't care about this plate. There's only one thing I love in this house right now, and that's you. Nothing else here matters. Now, if that level of empathy and learning can take place in a crappy 62-year arc away from being this dumb teenage father who would have yelled at her and told her off and who knows what, um, imagine the creator of the universe who planted within the creation our ability for consciousness and empathy and his relationship with us. And imagine this creator creating us expressly to condemn us because we have a wrong idea about him. Do you think that if Lucy (laughs) called me the wrong name or forgot my birthday or said I had eight arms or one day went off to college, said she didn't agree with the thing I said and didn't believe anything I believed or hated me, that my response would be to write her off and say, you know what, good riddance, I'm done with you. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, you can burn in hell forever. So it isn't looking in the scripture that makes me feel we have a loving God, although when I look at Jesus, I certainly do. But it is looking into the eyes of the people who know me best. When all the BS is gone and they see me every day, if I can read a little bit of unconditional love and trust there, how much more can I read that in the message of the whole universe to me about a loving Heavenly Father? That's what this book is about. Wow. Frank? Thank you for being with us today and explaining these thoughts. It is good for me to have this context, uh, and uh, I, I love how you are seeing Jesus more and more in your journey towards him. And uh, so our listeners, uh, the book, by the way, just to reiterate, the book is called Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. Uh, available on Amazon, and we'll we'll put a link up on the uh, Facebook page. Um, if our listeners want to contact you directly, how, what's the best way for them to do that, Frank? Well, first of all, I do answer my email. 
And if they just go to my website, frankshafer.com, F-R-A-N-K-S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R uh, at AOL, um, I will answer them. Or they can just go to the message section of the Facebook page and leave me a message or uh, whatever. But um, if they just hit contact on my website, I will answer emails and questions. And if you get the book on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble where it's available in other bookstores um, and you have a question, I have put my email address in the book because precisely I want this to be a dialogue. Not that I have all the answers, but I'd like to hear from you too. All right. Well, thank you again so much. It's been a, it's been a privilege and a joy to have you with us on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. And we'll be back in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. On the Pirate Monk Internet Radio Extravaganza. Yeah. Wow. That was uh, that that was actually really enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. That was awesome. And, and I say actually that 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 betrays the I was afraid. Uh, honestly, I had some anxiety. About- well, and and yeah, and it, and and for me, it it was because I wanted to know. Okay, this this guy talks about really interesting things. Not all of which I necessarily agree with, even the nuances of how he would tell a story of Mary and Martha or those things, though I think he had truth in there. Um, but I tell those same stories in a different way. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is, for anybody I meet, I, I want to know, what, what do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Yeah. And that's the important question. I don't care if somebody doesn't... Uh, if they say first chapter of Genesis, I don't understand that. I, I think maybe evolution is true, and the evangelical church recoils. And I'm like, I don't, I don't give a crap. Just who's Jesus? Yeah. Because God's revealing Himself through Scripture. Now, here's uh, and it's it's the important question: What is the purpose of Scripture? It's to reveal the person of God through Jesus Christ. Old Testament, New Testament. It's about us. Finding God through Jesus, and and I really, even places I disagree with people, if it's a journey towards Jesus, my heart can go with them on that and say, okay, let's grapple with this together. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that is his heart is let's grapple through hard questions. Let's not ignore them. If you have a doubt or if you're struggling, cool. Yeah. But how is it leading us towards Jesus? And that part I can. I can wholly endorse. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, perhaps we ought to issue a bit of a parental advisory or something to those who will uh, read this book on our recommendation. He will say he says some things in the in the in the book that uh, that just are flat out disturbing and things that I uh, he makes statements <laughs> I would not make. Uh, you know, he will say that he will si- that he simultaneously believes in God and does not believe in God. And when he's talking on the does not believe in God sign side, man, does he say some scary stuff. So brace yourself. Um, Yeah, but but that uh, honestly, I'm hoping that's what people understand, even in our conversations here. Yeah, Uh, I I think I have a pretty straightforward, orthodox view of Scripture and of Jesus. Yeah, though I I hope I say disconcerting. I hope I've come to disconcerting pieces in that journey. But I also I totally value listening. Uh, to a Christopher Hitchens or a Penn Jillette, and then go to the John Lennox. I, I want to hear how people are on their journeys in life, not so that, oh, good, I found the person that will answer the questions for me. Nobody gets to answer the questions for me. Yeah. Because I believe my Abba, my Father in Heaven, He wants to have a relationship with me, and and we're doing it. Yeah. But I also am informed that the world and thinking, I'm tainted by Western thought, and my Western thought has invaded my view of Scripture mm-hmm. in ways that God never intended when He gave me the beautiful uh, gift of the Bible. Yeah. So I'm defaulting to things that are not what the, the daddy that I love meant, Yeah. and I want that to be exposed. I want the parts of my heart that are full of crap to be exposed because I don't want crap in my view of my daddy and my sacred brother Jesus, who I love. And that's why we want to be able to say, all right, let's ask the hard questions. Let's have conversations that say things in ways I would not say it, but okay, this is important for me. Yeah, I don't have to agree. And I don't think Frank wants me to agree. I don't, I don't think that's his deal. I think... Uh, actually, I know... His desire is not that I would agree that my journey has to be his journey. Right. But let's actually engage the real questions, the stuff that's scary, and find out that Jesus is everything he said he was. Right. All right. Well, it was a great conversation. Uh, We already, all too soon, have come to the end of yet another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Go ahead and interact with us, will you, on the Facebook page or shoot us an email at samsonpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love hey, to let me say, yeah? Let me say this to our listeners. Uh, occasionally, especially when I wake up in the middle of the night and I, I'm like, ah, oh, I can't go back to sleep, those are the times I go to Facebook and look at what my friends, you know, what's that called? The news feed, whatever yeah. it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I look at that uh, a few times a month. And I realize people talk about really mundane ridiculous nonsense like, yeah, I found a cool parking spot at Starbucks, and they decide to put down their Facebook. Right. If you are willing to use Facebook for such ridiculous things that none of us care about, then get on the Pirate Monk Radio Facebook and ask questions and bring up topics. Where's your heart? And if you don't want us to mention your name, that's cool. Send us a message on Facebook uh, and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Can you bring this up? So if, if you'll take the time to tweet nonsense or Facebook update nonsense, 
let's let's Facebook update some stuff that matters to our hearts and our lives. This Amen. is my challenge to our listeners. Glory. Amen to that. That's right. Pass the plate. Amen. Pass the plate. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think this is it. We're 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 gonna we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna play the uh, we're gonna play the end music now, aren't we? Yep. We're gonna bumper our way out of here. Yep. So until next time, it's Nate, Mondo, and Aaron. Yeah.